Let's go on now to Genesis 28, 10 to 22. Genesis 28, 10 to 22. Here we'll read about Jacob's dream of a ladder and the angels of God. 28, 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it by his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put by his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of that city had been loosed. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. In verse 10, he departs from Beersheba and goes to Haran, or toward Haran, which means he's going from south of the land of Canaan toward the north, but he takes about a one day's journey um, perhaps a couple of days, depending on how long. But then he comes to a certain place, midpoint, verse 11. Now, firstly, we need to note that from Beersheba to Haran in the north, in northern Mesopotamia, that would have been a trip of about 480 miles. 480 miles without airplanes and cars. And that's how long he would have had to travel, however many weeks and months that takes. 480 miles. In verse 11, the certain place he arrives at is in verse 19 called, he calls it Bethel, but the people had already called it Luz. Luz, perhaps because almond trees were there, and perhaps that's why that tree or that place was called that. That's what Luz means in the Hebrew language. It means almond or almond tree. And he renames it or gives it an additional name, Bethel. Bethel means house of God. House of God. Because God appeared to him in a dream in that certain place. Verse 11, it doesn't say why he spent the night uh, there and not in the city. It looks like he's out outside of the city. Perhaps because of who or whatever he has with him or because he does not want to go in the city and get too close and associate too much with the Canaanites in the city or in the town. So when the sun sets, 
He's finding a place to rest. And verse 12, he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. He sees a dream. Now, this dream is not an ordinary dream. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are prophets. Remember from Psalm 105, 8 to 15. So Jacob is also a prophet. So this, I think, is a prophetic dream, not a regular, ordinary dream. So if it is a prophetic dream, notice it says that there's a ladder and it reaches from earth to heaven. And the angels of God are going up and down. Why would this be the case? Well, in terms of the immediate encouragement to Jacob, God's reminding Jacob that I have my angels that I'm commissioning and sending to help you, to aid you. So don't worry. Even though you're leaving the familiar circumstances of your parents' home and the land of Canaan where you were born, and you're going to a foreign land, you don't know what you're going to experience there, and even along the way, you might experience danger, danger from wild animals, dangers from bandits, from whomever. You might experience this danger. I'm going to be with you and take care of you. That would be the immediate encouragement. But I think, though, that these angels of God ascending and descending would be a type of Christ, that the only way to heaven is by Christ, from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth. Christ will descend, Christ will ascend. As he said in John 3, 13. John 3, 13, he says that the Son of Man is the one who ascends and descends. But angels who accompany the Son of Man, ascending and descending, is in John 1, 51. John 1, 51, where he tells Nathanael that very thing about angels accompanying him with his ministry or in his ministry. John 1.51 And he said to him, to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The angels help the Son of Man. The angels help us, which is also evident from Hebrews 1.14. Helps all of us, not just Jacob. Hebrews 1.14, are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are also commissioned by God to help us. Matthew 18.10, Matthew 18.10, Jesus is speaking of us and he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven Continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Their angels, the angels of the little ones, are beholding the face of the Father so that if the Father gives them uh, an assignment, a commission to help us, they will go and help us. So he, the angels are there to help Jacob. Their angels are also there to help us. But most importantly, the angels were there along the ministry of Christ alongside his ministry and whatever he accomplished. He is the one or he, Jesus is the ladder. And without this ladder, there's no one who's going to go from earth to heaven. He first has to descend and then ascend. And then we can ascend to heaven with him. 
So these spiritual implications are here with these angels, not only to physically protect, but spiritually protect Jacob. Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, uh, Abraham and the God of Isaac. The Lord is there. He sees the Lord in this dream. And the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and the God of your father, Isaac. Well, who was this Lord in the dream visible to Jacob? Who was that Lord? Look at Genesis 31, Genesis 31, 11. Genesis 31, 11, which recounts chapter 28. 31, 11. Then the angel of God said to, said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. You see, in this passage, it's the angel of God or the messenger of God. And who would that be? That has to be Christ because of John 1.18. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Christ has explained the Father. Christophany, whenever there's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament or God in the Old Testament, it is Christ. And in this case, it says in Genesis 31, it was the angel of God. And the angel of God does not say, thus says the Lord. The angel of God says that he is the God of Bethel. He is the one who sees all of Jacob's afflictions. And Jacob at Bethel anointed a pillar, which we just read in chapter 28, and he made a vow to God. So which God would that be? It would be the Son, the Son of God. This is an important doctrine, just like we, what we said earlier about Jacob's hope being in the life to come because he put his faith in Christ for the life to come, in the coming death and resurrection of Christ for his forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Verse 14, 28, 14. Um, 13, God repeats that the land will belong to him and to his descendants. We saw that from verse 4. But now also in 14, your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. This is a reiteration. In the first time of this chapter, it was Isaac by the prophetic word who announced it to Jacob. But now that Jacob is apart from Isaac, God reassures him, encourages him when he's out there all alone, away from everyone. The same word that this promise is indeed going to be fulfilled in Jacob and Jacob's offspring. Verse 14. In you... And in your descendants shall all the families 
of the earth be blessed in you and in your descendants. Well, in what sense, in you and in your offspring? It has to be if we're looking forward to Christ. It has to be fulfilled in Christ. Let's see how this is true. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You remember that God told Abraham the same thing that he told Jacob. He said, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says the same in Genesis 28, 14. In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, let's see what the infallible, inspired interpretation is. If we're not clear from reading Genesis, Galatians 3, we'll start at 6, 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Abraham believes God. And we who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. And that gospel included Abraham's knowledge that God would, would also justify the Gentiles by faith, just as he justified Abraham. Abraham was not saved by works. He was saved by faith in the gospel. And even the Gentiles will be saved by faith in the same gospel. And he's assured all the nations shall be blessed in you. In what sense blessed in Abraham? We'll see in a moment. So if we do have faith with Abraham, we are blessed with him, Abraham, the believer. Then in Galatians 3, 10 to 14, he reminds us that we are all under a curse. And the only one who can remove the curse from us, redeem us from the curse is Christ. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because of our sin, we are under a curse. But then, verse 16, 316. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. When God made the promise to Abraham, it was to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. So God promised Abraham and God promised Christ. And we know it's Christ because he says here, he does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. The promise of Abraham was also given to Christ as the fulfillment or the means of fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Seed does not refer to merely the physical descendants, but it refers to the coming descendant or supreme offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3.16. Verse 
26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So if we belong to Christ, just as Abraham belongs to Christ... We are also Abraham's offspring, and we belong to Christ. It all goes together, all by faith. It doesn't matter what your genealogy is. It depends on whether you have faith in Christ, in the gospel of Christ, which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed as they anticipated the coming death and resurrection of Christ, who would bear the curse for us and take away our sins. We have to say this. Why? Because, again, the Old Testament is not a book for this world, for material things. It's talking about the Old Testament is centered on Christ. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify of me. Right? Jesus said that in John 5, 39. Don't look at the Bible and just study the Bible devoid of Christ. Don't study the Old Testament devoid of Christ. The Old Testament preaches Christ, he's saying. Don't miss that point, which is the biggest point, the most central doctrine of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ. One gospel throughout all time. 28.15, Genesis 28.15, And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The assurance of God's presence. I am with you. Even Christ said that. I, behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Christ said that in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He says it right here to Jacob. I am with you. I will never leave you and, nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And the same promise is given to Jacob. Not only that, but he promises to bring Jacob back. He's going to stay away for a while, but then he's going to come back to the land of Canaan because Canaan is the type of heaven, not Haran, not Ur, not any other place in the world. To remind Jacob, he should not settle there and be happy. He has to come back travel back and resettle in the land of Canaan. 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He's not asserting that he doesn't understand or realize the omnipresence of God. He's not asserting that. He's just saying that surely God is here and he has an assurance of it. And he didn't realize that this was going to happen. He did not understand or realize or know that this was going to happen. But God in his grace graciously assures Jacob that when he is fleeing, that God is with him. And this is a truth in any in every circumstance we experience. When we are about to deal with uncertainties, unknowns, it's easy for us to be bewildered and confused. But God assures us in the midst of that, without us realizing it, without us knowing it, 
He will stop us and make us realize that he is with us and he will take care of us. That's what he did to Jacob. Then in verse 17, it says he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? He was afraid. Now, this fear is not the fear of one who is an unbeliever and is experiencing the fright and terror of God because of his unbelief. But this is the fear of a believer. The fear of a believer. Psalm 119, 120. Psalm 119, 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Certainly, David is not fearful of God as an unbeliever would be fearful of God. He is fearing God in the sense that he wants to please God. He wants to obey God. He understands the holiness of God. He understands that he is sinful, God is holy, and that God has made provision for him in Christ. Otherwise, he would not be able to stand before God. My flesh trembles for fear of you because he understands God's holiness. And I am afraid of your judgments. Yes, being afraid of God's judgments is a deterrent to sin. Deterrent. Which doctrine is not only an Old Testament doctrine, it's a New Testament doctrine. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. He knows that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, he fears the Lord, he says in verse 11. He fears him so that he might walk in his ways. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Since we have promises, well, Jacob just received a promise also, right? He received the promise and he was afraid of God and said, how awesome is this place? Well, in chapter 6, the promise is that God is among us and with us and that we should live a separate life, right? Chapter 6, 14 to 18. So he says, having these promises that God is with us, beloved, since God loves us, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And Philippians 2, Philippians 2 Verse 12, we'll read Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Two twelve. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
He encourages us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This does not teach salvation by works, salvation by fear. It's not teaching that. He, he says, work out your salvation, not work for it, because he already told us in one six. for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And one twenty nine. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So God has already granted us salvation, but the working out of our salvation, manifesting it in good deeds, is necessary as the fruit of what God has done inside of us. The fruit will be manifested, and how will it be manifested? In fear and trembling before the holiness of God and the holy word of God. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, verse 2. That's the kind of fear that Jacob had, or being afraid of God that he had. We need that today because it's not, fear of God is not just respecting him and honoring him in certain ways, but it's an attitude of the whole life every day based on true knowledge of His holiness, our sin, and the day of judgment that awaits all of us. We have to be ready and to be found faithful in Christ. Furthermore, in Genesis twenty-eight seventeen, he says, This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He doesn't mean that literally that this is the only way in terms of the physical place called Bethel, which means house of God, that this is the only way nobody's going to get to heaven unless they come and come pass through that area or that they come touch the stone that he's going to put up as a pillar. He's not meaning it in anything like in any way like that. He's talking about it in terms of the metaphor, in terms of what he just experienced, that the house of God and the gate of heaven is found only in Christ, who is the ladder. Christ is the ladder, and the Lord is above in heaven, at the top of the ladder, and He will receive all of us into heaven. That that is what He means by house of God and gate of heaven. In Christ. Verse 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put by his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He takes this stone and sets it up as a pillar and then pours oil on it. He's not doing this to make it an idol. Though others use stones and other things as idols, he's not using this as an idol, but he's using this as a memorial. And he pours oil on it in terms of this memorial, in reference to this memorial. Now, the scripture, the scripture does call Christ a stone, correct? It does call him a stone. And in fact, later, Jacob is going to refer to Christ in Genesis 49, Genesis 49, in a couple of places, 49, 18. 49.18, he says. Actually, let's begin earlier. 
in 49 verse 10. 49, 10. Three references to Christ here. And this is Jacob saying it. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So from the tribe of Judah, the rulership will not cease until Shiloh comes. One of the names of Christ in the Old Testament is Shiloh. And to Shiloh, the obedience of the peoples, the peoples of the world, the nations of the world, will have the obedience of faith in Christ. Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith they will have in Christ. Verse 18, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. For your salvation. Well, who is the salvation of the world? Christ, the Savior of the world. And he says, I wait. I am hoping, anticipating in this salvation in Christ. And then verse 24, Genesis 49, 24. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. He calls Christ here the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That's why I think he took the stone and set it up as a memorial stone or memorial pillar and then poured oil upon it. And when he pours oil on it, what does the scripture usually say oil symbolizes? The oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit, such as in Psalm 45 or Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, quoting from Psalm 45, 6 to 8. So there, the Holy Spirit is the one that's represented in the pouring of the oil. So Christ the stone, the Holy Spirit, who, and remember what did John say? That he has the Spirit without measure. Christ has the Holy Spirit without measure. He's expressing faith in this memorial. That's what Jacob is doing. He's not worshiping an idol. He's not setting up an idol. He's setting up a memorial for a demonstration of his faith. A further demonstration of his faith is his renaming of this place. Verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel house of God. Moreover, verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, this is the first time we read of a vow or the word vow in the Bible. He made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. The first time we read of a vow, Jacob, we do know from chapter 33, by the end of chapter 33, he does honor God with greater diligence and greater desire to please him. Uh, for example, he makes sure that there are no idols anywhere in his whole clan by chapter 35. He makes sure there's no idols, nobody anywhere is worshiping idols. Presumably, he did not make sure of that before, but now he is. And he's saying, if God's going to take care of me like this and I come back, I am going to have greater confidence, greater faith in God, 
and my life and my expectations are going to be higher. I'm going to raise my standard of holiness upon my return. We could take what he's saying in that way. He's not saying that he depends on God just for his material blessings. He's not saying, if you just provide me with some material blessings, then everything else will be just fine. I don't care about anything else. He's not saying that. He's saying that he knows that that would be a token of God's favor to him, but what he really wants is the spiritual blessing. And how do we know what he really wants is the spiritual blessing? Because he says in verse 22, he says that I will surely give a tenth to you. I'm going to show that I'm not living for the things of the world by giving back to you a tenth. He's going to tithe. A tenth is a tithe. And so the material blessings that he receives, he's going to use for God's purposes. And he's going to give a tenth back to God. Now, a clarification on vows. A clarification on vows. Vows are neither required. They're not required. That's one thing. But if a vow is made, it must be paid. Vows are not required, but if one does vow, then one must pay. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, 1 to 7. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. By the way, house of God, Bethel, right? Go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. We have to be careful with what comes out of our mouth, especially when we go in to worship God. We have to be extremely careful. And if we do make a vow to God, we must pay it and not delay in paying it. And then he also says in verse 5, It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So if you do make a vow, fulfill it. Otherwise, just keep quiet and not make anything. Proverbs 20, 25. 20, 25. It is a snare for a man to say rashly, it is holy. And after the vows, to make inquiry. He's talking about rash words. Don't speak rashly at all. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. 533 to 37. 533. 
Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond these is of evil, or is of the evil one, meaning is of Satan. Jesus is saying the same thing, not to make a false vow. And don't make a, 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 a vow um, by your head or by anything else. You can't make it by anything but by, uh, by God himself. Then, if we do make or have a propensity to make false vows, don't make any vow. Just say yes or, or no and fulfill your word. That's all that's necessary. Now, one clarification. The scripture in Matthew and elsewhere is not completely forbidding the making of vows or swearing an oath. It's not completely forbidding that. Some have misinterpreted these passages to say that we cannot do so in marriage. We cannot do so in the courtroom. We cannot do so if we're installed into a political office or something like that that we cannot make a vow or an oath in those circumstances at all. But that's not what Scripture is talking about. It's talking about not rashly doing it, not doing it and then not paying. And so it's warning us that we have to fulfill whatever God says. That's what it's saying. And if we're worried about what we might say or what might happen, then just keep quiet and don't make a vow. That's what it's warning us about. And to show that, let me just give one example. Remember, in Matthew, if you're still in Matthew, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Jesus is the one who said not to make a false vow in chapter 5. Correct? He's the one that said it. But then he does make a vow or an oath in chapter 26. Which means he would not be contradicting himself. Let's see what he says. Matthew 26, Matthew 26, and we'll start at verse 62. 26, 62. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In 62, Christ has not spoken up to defend himself. In 63, the high priest is upset and says, I adjure you by the living God. What does it mean to adjure or what's an adjuration? It, it's the authority putting a subordinate under oath. And then Jesus speaks under oath. In verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, so forth. So Jesus believed that it was okay to be under oath. 
He's not saying in Matthew 5, you can never be under oath. Just make sure you speak the truth and fulfill whatever you say under oath. And one last point from Genesis 28, 28, 22. It says there, I will surely give a tenth to you. Giving a tenth is the same as giving a tithe. He gave a tenth to God upon his return. But also, the first time we read about a tithe or a tenth is in Genesis 14. Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham gives a tenth. We read in Genesis 14, verse 20. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. That is, Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth of all. This brings up the question about whether tithing is applicable in the church, in today's church. Well, let me say very briefly a few points on that matter. Um, The arguments typically are, well... The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Therefore, they tithed in the Old Testament, but we don't tithe today because the church exists today. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Well, that's not true. If we believe that we put our faith in the gospel of Christ to be saved, Abraham did. If Abraham did and the others did, then that means the church, the true church, did exist in the Old Testament. So that's one. Number two, um, the argument is used that the tithe is only in the law of Moses. Moses established the tithe. Well, Genesis 14 and Genesis 28 precede Moses. Yes, they are in the Old Testament, but they're not um, a Mosaic prescription. They're not starting with Moses. Obviously, Abraham and Jacob are hundreds of years before Moses. So that argument doesn't work either. Another one is that in the New Testament, we give freely or voluntarily. In the Old Testament, they had to do it under obligation. Uh, They were compelled to do it. So it was drudgery to them, but it is happy for us. It is delightful for us, but it was drudgery for them. Well, that's not true either. It's not true in Abraham's case, in Jacob's case, They are doing it willingly. And in the case of many examples in the book of Exodus and in the book of Chronicles, whenever they were tithing, there are many expressions that say they did it generously, they did it voluntarily, they did it very happily. Um, And sometimes they gave so much that the, the leadership had to say, no, no, stop, that's enough, we have enough, don't give any more. So they were doing it voluntarily and generously in the Old Testament too. Um, So these are some of the arguments that are used to say it applies then, but not now. And then one last thing. Um, Usually what happens with people who deny tithing now is um, that they do it because it's not that they um, are going to give generously and voluntarily a significant uh, percentage of their income. What they really want to do is put 
a dollar bill or a five dollar bill in the offering plate. That's really what they want to do because Christian surveyors, Christian researchers over the years, they publish reports as to what percentage of income is actually given by the average churchgoer. And it's usually somewhere between one to three percent of their income. That's why I use that hyperbole of just put a five dollar bill in the offering plate. Uh, even though the, they might make whatever, $50,000, $100,000 a year, they just put $5 in the plate a week. Well, their excuse is um, about getting away from the tithe is so that they don't have to give much to the church. Well, if they don't give to the church, then how is the gospel going to be preached? Right. And even how are our missionaries going to be sent? And how are we going to help those who are in need who have material, physical needs, first in the church and then outside the church. How are we going to help the poor in those ways if we're not giving enough? And then finally, I'll say, a lot of times, if there are big donors, the money goes into the buildings. Millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in buildings and not for true ministry. So... These wrong views of money and tithing often have to do with the greater fundamental issue that these people don't understand the value of the true gospel, the true doctrine taught from the pulpit. They don't understand it. They don't care for that. Not only the people, but the pastors. Pastors and people, all of them, it's a whole big cabal of false doctrine and unethical behavior. And we have to fight against that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.